January 22nd, 1973. Former U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson dies at his Texas ranch. January 27th, 1973. The Paris Peace Accord is signed, which ended the Vietnam War. In the middle of all of these big headlines, almost without notice, while the entire nation had its eyes on, you know, quote, bigger things, seven men, non-elected, but appointed for life, changed the entire course of history. Newsweek ran an article on February 5th, 1973, and this is an excerpt from that. Said this, the end of a war and the death of a president got bigger headlines, but in a quiet way, a third event last week may have may have as lasting an influence on American life. In one of the boldest and most sweeping decisions of the Nixon years, the court ruled seven to two that the criminal abortion laws of almost every state violate a constitutional right of privacy and must therefore be struck down. Almost. 42 years ago, on January 22, 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned state bans on abortion. They wiped away every state law that had previously protected the lives of unborn human beings. Without a single vote cast, without a single piece of legislation discussed or, 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 or passed, abortion was made legal in all 50 states, through all nine months of pregnancy, for virtually any reason at all. Over 57 million babies in the United States alone have lost their lives as a result of that one, quote, quiet decision. Some tout this ruling as a triumph of freedom and democracy in this nation. But in reality, it's the grossest, one of the grossest civil rights violations this world has ever known. Today, today, I mean this day, around the world, there will be approximately 125,000 babies killed by means of abortion. It's over 40 times the number of people killed on 9-11 in the terrorist attacks. And that's just one day. Tomorrow, it will be the same. In this nation, Planned Parenthood leads the way in advocating for abortion. In their 2014 report, which is published on their website, these are numbers that I read from directly from their site, they reported 327,653 abortion, abortion procedures last year. They boast on their, in their annual report of their accomplishments in, quote, Fighting abortion stigma in popular culture. They, they worked hard to help release the movie Obvious Child. Some of you are aware of this film. This is how it's described. A, an edgy, hip, funny story about one woman's choice to abort her child. Planned Parenthood, quote, this is from their report, worked for years with the film's writer, director, and producers to shape the story and help them film, help them film it in a Planned Parenthood center and oversaw its release. They also speak of leading the way in the fight 
uh, against abortion restrictions in several states. Many of these have made headlines in the last year in Arizona and Iowa and Alabama and Texas and Mississippi, Wisconsin, Louisiana. And, uh, and guess what? About 41% of their annual revenue comes from government grants and reimbursements, taxpayers. $528 million was given to Planned Parenthood by the government last year toward their almost $1.2 billion budget. They currently run approximately 700 centers. That means that on average, each center receives about $1.6 million for operations each year. And I'm not sure what the budget of the Planned Pregnancy Care Center is in in Jonesboro, I'm guessing it's a little less than $1.6 million, um, their operations budget. So the, the deck is stacked against us here. Planned Parents' efforts to fight abortion stigma in popular culture are working. A World Magazine this last week, Howard pointed me to this um, just yesterday. It drew attention to how the language is softening when it comes to describing abortion. One New York City abortion facility called Early Options advertises what it calls the soft-touch procedure. In this procedure, performed anywhere from five to ten weeks. Now, remember, the heart starts beating at three weeks. So five to ten weeks into the pregnancy, this is the quote from this procedure, this description of procedure, the doctor simply inserts a soft, flexible tube through the natural opening of the cervix and applies gentle pressure. This quietly releases your late period and induces a miscarriage. They even go on to call it a natural release. That's, that's just lies. What we need to remember is what, what may be called legal or culturally acceptable is not necessarily moral in God's sight. Morality is not determined by judicial opinion or by popular opinion. It's determined by Scripture, what God says. And so we can, we can argue against abortion without any reference to God's Word. I mean, there are, there are scientific and and psychological and other ways to, to deal, to talk about this issue. It is just a human atrocity. Without scripture, we can say that. Science, medicine demonstrate this. Medical literature just calls that soft touch procedure, that type of procedure. They, they refer to it in their, in their medical writings as an induced termination. That's what it really is. But, but more than what science and medicine have to say, we need to know what God has to say. And that's what we want to do this morning. The title of the message is, is Abortion, Do We Listen to Men or to God? Um, because men, the culture, the society has, has, again, has moved on. It's not that big of a deal anymore. But, but God is the one, His voice is the one that our ears need to be tuned to. But before we look at what God says about abortion, I, I just want to briefly comment on what abortion is. And I know that sounds seems unnecessary, but I, I want to just give a definition and say a couple of things. And then also what the Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade was all about. Uh, just hopefully this will give clarity to maybe some muddiness in our minds. First question, what is what is abortion? And you may not be able to write this down, but just listen. The, the extraction or expulsion 
of the immature human fetus from the mother's womb with the intent to end the life of that fetus prior to natural birth. I know that's a mouthful, but listen. Fetus is a, is a perfectly okay term as long as you understand it to mean uh, this is a human baby, a developing human baby. It's a medical term, and, and that's okay. But you'll never hear abortion advocates speak of a fetus as a baby or a child. It will be considered a product of conception or just simply a piece of tissue. But abortion advocates, they'll argue that, that, that it is not a human baby that they're killing. But this is where science is against them. This is what the World Magazine article, one of the most unscientific claims of the year, and this is this is made number one on their list. Um, Before conception, let's just think about before conception of a child, there is not human life, but at the moment of conception, there is new human life, and and at the moment of an abortion, that human life ends. That's that's the reality. The baby. That little tiny baby possesses 46 chromosomes that are distinct from both father and mother. You cannot medically or scientifically say that that baby is a piece of the mother's body. It's not. It it is a new, distinct human. Genetically and medically and scientifically. By, By 21 days, the first heartbeats have begun. At 45 days, brain waves can be detected. By the ninth and 10th weeks... The thyroid and adrenal glands are functioning. By 12 or 13 weeks, he has fingernails, sucks his thumb, recoils from pain, has fingerprints. The, the, the only things this little developing life needs to become what you and I are is time and nurture. So that's, that's what abortion is. Second question, what was Roe v. Wade all about? By a vote of 7 to 2, the United States Supreme Court held that until a child in the womb is, quote, viable, which means they define as capable of sustaining life outside the womb, is viable or, quote, capable of meaningful life, and the court ruled this was about six to seven months, the mother's desire for an abortion should take precedence over the baby's right to life. That was what the court ruled. Now, for the last two to three months of the pregnancy, the court said that the state may protect the life of the unborn, but that it must allow an abortion if the life or health of the mother is threatened. Now, they, the court defined life or health very broadly in this law. It meant physical, emotional, or psychological health. Some of the factors that were considered in making that, that judgment were the, the mother's age, marital status, the infant's prospects of a of a distressful life or a future uh, were all factors in determining the life and health of the mother and child. So, in other words, basically, a woman could legally abort her child for just about any reason right up to the moment of, of birth. So when it, when it comes to this issue in the courts, I, I've heard people say, and I've even heard Christians say things like this, we can't legislate morality. And I've said statements like that in in some areas. But listen, we have laws against rape, incest, theft, murder, extortion, child abuse, pedophilia. You know what those are? Those are moral issues. 
It doesn't, that argument doesn't hold up. One of the main purposes for law is to protect the innocent and the weak. And so abortion laws relate directly to these matters. Don't let culture convince you otherwise here. Now, one last disclaimer before we get to the scriptures. I realize that there is a pretty good chance that there may be a woman or women in this room who have had abortions. Um, Maybe you worked at a clinic that that the doctor performed abortions and you assisted. Or maybe you've counseled women to have abortions. Um, And please, please hear me. This is not an attack against you. I love you. We love you. Jesus loves you. That's what really matters. Um, one in six women in the United States who, who have had abortions claim to be evangelical Christians. And this is why I say it's a pretty good chance that there may be somebody here. This may be in part of, for the fear that some Christian women have of being ostracized by the church. Um, uh, and, and so if a woman becomes pregnant outside of marriage... You just say to us, to body, our job is not to shun them, it's to help them. And, and so, but if you're here today, if you've had an abortion, if you've had a dozen abortions, if you've performed thousands of abortions, uh, just, I want to say just a couple things, three quick things. One, you aren't even close to being the worst sinner that I know. I am the worst sinner that I know. Um, and I've said this statement before, and it's, but it's perfectly true, and you could say the same thing. Even if, even if, whatever sin you could confess to me, I know more about my own sin, and it's uglier to me. Um, and so I, I'm not standing in a place of self-righteous condemnation of you. I am a fellow sinner pointing to the fountain of God's grace that we both need to drink deeply from. And that's the second statement I want to make. As great as your sin and my sin may be, God's grace is greater. The answer is not to, to make light of your sin. It's not to redefine the terms. It's not to, to uh, fight the stigma of abortion and soften the language. The answer is to, to make much of God's grace. It's to lift high the cross of Jesus Christ that both shows the exceeding sinfulness of sin and yet the enormity of God's mercy that's available to us in Christ. And so I want us to see that this morning. And then the third statement I would say is the authority on which I speak. And I pray that this is true. It's not my own. It's the Bible's. Um, I don't want to offer my opinions on morality. They don't mean a thing. I want to let God speak through his word on this matter of the sanctity of human life. And so let's let's turn there now. Big idea this morning. Since God is the creator and sustainer of human life, we should value and protect the lives of all innocent human beings. Now, I don't mean innocent that, that there's such thing as truly as a sinless human being, but as innocent as Scripture defines it, and we'll get there in a moment. So five lines of evidence this morning from Scripture for valuing and protecting unborn children. First one is this. First thing Scripture teaches Human life is unique in that God created us in his image. Um, humans are uniquely made in the image of God. Genesis 1.26, there God distinguishes humans from the, from the rest of animal creation. Only of man did God say, this is Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. 
And then he appointed man to rule over all the other creatures of the earth. So God uniquely made human beings in his image. And, and the second thing, just it's God who made that. He created us. The Bible affirms clearly that humans are not the product of chance and time. It's man didn't evolve from lower forms of life. God directly created man in his image. And to say that he made man in his image, it means that we have, hey, we have the capability of rational thought and personality and moral responsibility. Those are aspects of being made in the image of God. Some argue that that kind of statement that God created directly man in his image, that's, that is a matter of Faith, or really what they basically define faith as, opinion. But I would say it's a matter of a very reasonable faith. The view that something as complex as human life, the human body, and the view, the view that something that complex is the product of pure impersonal chance plus time is a matter of very unreasonable faith. There's, there's no evidence of other such complexity arising from random chance. I can't labor this point, but just, just let that sit on you. And even, even the most ardent evolutionists functionally affirm that human life is distinct from animal life. Just an illustration of this. So you imagine an evolutionist driving through his neighborhood, and he comes around a curve, and there's this little chipmunk uh, flopping around in the road, writhing in, from pain because he's been he's been hit by a car, and so he stops his car. He gets out. He rushes to it. He frantically calls nine one one, but the paramedics are too late. The chipmunk dies, and and the, he he sits by that chipmunk corpse and just sobs uncontrollably until the hearse arrives to take the chipmunk away. And that, 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 that little scene, it scars him for the rest of his life. I say, that wouldn't happen. That's crazy. I mean, I, I realize, yeah, I don't like that feeling. I've run over enough squirrels in my life. I don't like that feeling. And, but I'm not scarred for life. Um, that's crazy. But listen, you change that chipmunk to a 10-year-old girl walking home from school who gets hit by a car. Well, that changes everything. That that's different. And that scene is truly horrific to anybody. Why? Because we innately recognize that human beings are different than animals. No matter what we philosophically believe, we 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 understand this. The reason, according to Scripture, that we believe that and understand that is that people are created in the image of God. Animals are not. So that's the first thing we need to see. Second line of of reasoning, line of evidence, is that the Bible forbids the shedding of innocent blood. The Bible clearly commands, Exodus 20, verse 13, Thou shalt not murder. The Bible does not forbid all killing Capital punishment, war, uh, national defense, personal defense, those kinds of things. Being pro-life doesn't mean that we have to be pacifists or against corporal capital punishment. But murder is forbidden in Scripture. The, the Bible uses this phrase, 
innocent blood some 20, th- 20 times. And it always condemns the shedding of innocent blood. Those who die for no, uh, uh, no wrongdoing of their own directly. John Piper, with this in mind, he says, Surely the blood of the unborn is as innocent as any blood that flows in the world. And I agree. And but So I want to say, the Bible clearly, expressly forbids the shedding of innocent blood. And I would say that is exactly what you have in the case of the unborn. Third line of reasoning is that prenatal human life is fully human and thus precious to God. Just consider a number of of passages on this, and we could talk about more. But just listen. Let's just look at a few. We were there in Psalm one thirty nine, and you may still have your Bible open there. God superintends life in the womb. That's the first thing we see from Scripture in Psalm one thirty nine. With poetic language, David is is affirming that that God is in God was in control of his formation in his mother's womb. God was over that. God, God's over everything. He's sovereign over all things. His providence governs everything. It governs the weather. It governs the lightning strikes. The lightning always hits its mark. Because God's sovereign over that. And God is sovereign over animals' behavior and, and food. And I could, I have all these scripture verses. We just don't have time to, to turn there. He's, he's seemingly, he's sovereign over the seemingly random events of life like the casting of lots. Rolling of dice, we would say. So surely if God is sovereign over those relatively minor things, then he also governs the formation of people in the womb. That's not a a, a stretch to say that. The Lord tells Moses, who has made man's mouth or who makes him mute or deaf, deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? That's in Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. So even... Even birth defects, which science attributes often to freak occurrences in nature or just genetics, they're, they're under God's direct superintendence for his sovereign purposes. There are so-called bioethicists that are consistent in applying their evolutionary bias to human life, and their conclusions are terrifying. One example is James Watson. He was one of the discoverers of the double helix structure of DNA. He suggested in 1973 when the Roe v. Wade uh, issue was, was on the front burner. He said this. If a child were not declared alive until three days after birth, then all parents could be allowed the choice only a few are given under the present system. The doctor could allow the child to die if the parents so choose and save a lot of misery and suffering. I believe this view is the only rational, compassionate attitude to have. One of his partners, Francis Crick, said five years later, he said, No newborn infant should be declared human until it has passed certain tests regarding its genetic endowment and that if it fails these tests, it forfeits its right to live. Cards are shown. They were then. But Peter Singer, he's, uh, he's, he's currently professor of bioethics at Princeton University today. He's teaching right now. 
He argues that if a child is born with a condition like hemophilia, he uses as an example, which is people live with hemophilia, live normal lives. Uh, where you have trouble, your blood doesn't clot and you have to cautions. But he says if a child is born with a condition like hemophilia, to allow the parents to terminate him so that they could replace him with a normally healthy child may be morally right. That's that's stuff that's being propagated. That is very different from what Scripture speaks of. The Bible, the Bible affirms that God is the one who superintends life in the womb. It's not evolution. It's not chance. It's not time. The Bible, secondly, affirm, uh, God ordains the penalty of life for life when the life of an unborn child is taken. Example of this in Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 25. There we see that when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child comes out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, Hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Those are the exact same penalties that were enacted against adults in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 20. So, so the, the Hebrew verb translated there, come out, it, it refers to a live birth in 11, 11 separate Old Testament passages. It never refers to a miscarriage, once to a still, stillbirth. Um, but so, so the, the idea is based on the verb usage and the Old Testament teaching uh, and the high regard for prenatal life that you find in Scripture. The baby in the womb has as much value as the already born person. That's what that's showing. Third, the, God affirms the distinctiveness of individuals in the womb, thus showing that they are all fully human. And we can't look up each of these references, but just consider a few examples of this. You have Jacob and Esau that are they're the distinct individuals in the womb. Genesis 25, 23, Romans 9, 11 and 12. You have Samson's mother, Judges 13, 3 to 5. His, his mother was not to drink wine because her son was to be a Nazarite who would abstain from alcohol. So even in the womb, that was there was a life that was affected. Jeremiah and Paul both acknowledged that God formed them in their womb and knew them by name. Jeremiah 1.5, Galatians 1.15, in Isaiah 49, uh, verses 1.5, that, that affirms the same thing to be true about the Messiah, Jesus, who was born. And you have John the Baptist who recognizes Jesus while both of them are still in the womb. Luke chapter 1, 35 to 36, 39 to 44. That's an incredible text. Um, Elizabeth's in her sixth month of pregnancy. And, and when, Mary is con- when Mary conceives Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And Mary goes to visit Elizabeth before John is born. So Elizabeth's in her final trimester. Mary's in her first trimester. And yet John recognizes Jesus, womb to womb, <laughs> in those early months of Mary's pregnancy. And it just shows that even in the first trimester, there, this is a person created in the image of God. And so you have these evidences in Scripture. A fourth line of evidence. I had to keep moving here. 
To view babies as inconvenient to the point of aborting them is to violate Jesus' view of children. According to the former Surgeon General, Dr. C. Everett Koop, the most common reason for abortion is convenience. And I think that still, I mean, I know it still holds true today. I don't know what the exact statistics are, but at that time, only 3 to 5% of all abortions were performed for reasons of rape, incest, the possibility of some disability in the child, or some severe threat to the life of the mother. That's a small percentage. Often it's a teenage girl who gets pregnant and either she nor her boyfriend are ready for that responsibility of being parents or the, the shame uh, that they perceive and feel. Um, or it's a 20, 30-something young lady who who the the economic hardship of having a child and the interruption maybe to her education or career. Uh, so it's generally convenience. It's generally convenience. And abortion is a convenient way to dispose of the whole problem. Now I realize we're speaking to women. There's a whole other sermon here that I could speak to the men. Young men, listen, let me just have a mini sermon here. Don't think that this isn't a, your your issue. You be pure. You respect the, the bodies, the souls of, of young ladies. <laughs> you treat them with dignity, which means you exercise self-control, purity. All right. Uh, but, but, but it's convenience. Well, what, what is in Luke chapter 18, verse 15 to 17, people are bringing their babies to Jesus so that he could just touch them. And so what do the disciples do? They rebuke the parents. They say, we don't have time for this. Jesus is too busy for this. He didn't have time to bless babies. He's got bigger, better things to do. It's a great inconvenience. But Jesus, what does he do? He rebukes the disciples. And he, and he welcomes the children. The, the word for children there, the, it's the Greek word for infant. It's the same word used in Luke chapter 18, 15, describing John in the womb. Jesus loves children. He loves babies from toddlers down to the unborn. He shows great love for us. What is his expression of love? Wade mentioned this. He calls us children. Children are a blessing. They're, we should have the same attitude as Jesus towards children from the time of conception onwards. But what about an, quote, unwanted child? What about a a child whose the birth would be an extreme hardship to the mom or the mom and dad. What about a baby conceived by rape or incest? What about a baby that has a disability that's picked up on the ultrasound that it's going to suffer all his life with and will never be, quote, normal? Wouldn't it be a lesser evil to abort these babies and spare them and their parents a life of hardship and pain? This brings us to the fifth, final line of evidence. To abort a baby in in an attempt to avoid suffering is to try to dodge God's good purposes in suffering. The Bible is clear that in this fallen world, God ordains suffering for his wise and good purposes. Romans 8.28 Sometimes we suffer as as a consequence for our own sin. And, and Hebrews chapter 12, 3 through 11, we, that, that, that could include hardships associated with having a baby out of wedlock. And, and 
Sometimes it's wise for the unwed mother to give the child up for adoption, but even that is a painful consequence to the mother. So sometimes we suffer for our own sins. Sometimes we suffer on account of other people's sins. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This would include the hardship of having a baby conceived through rape or incest and other things too. Sometimes we have no, reason, no understanding of why we're suffering. I mean, just in general. God permits it though. He, he does it to, to display His grace and power through our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10. But to abort because having a child would cause distress, economic, emotional distress, is not right. To argue that it's better to kill a child in the womb with a disability um, rather than allow him to live is, is an affront to the thousands of people who live wonderful lives with disabilities and to those who care for them, sons and daughters. On rare occasions, there may be the difficult dilemma of having to ch- take a child really, really early to save the life of the mother. And, and I think that's okay, but, but the difference is every effort ought to be made to save both baby and mom. And, and so, all right, just a couple concluding remarks here, and, and we'll, we'll be done. I want to give Sheila plenty of time this morning. You know, there's other biblical arguments against abortion, and there are scientific and psychological arguments against abortion. There many women go on to suffer long-term emotional, physical problems, and those are all well documented. But, but I, I want to conclude for us. I just want to offer a few action points for us. Where do we go? What do we do? Um, some of these things are things that every Christian in here, every person here should do. Some of these are things that some of you will take and you'll run with, and others we probably won't be personally involved in but, uh, other than supporting. But at some, some level, all of us need to be involved in the defense of the unborn. We have a responsibility before the Lord. So a few things. First thing is this, is help. Help. Uh, These are not profound. Support pregnancy care centers like the one in Clayton County, Jonesboro. We have one in Fayetteville as well. Other pro-life organizations. Uh, Give financially to these. Volunteer your time. Become a counselor. Get training and, and help out. Open your home to single pregnant women. Love women who are considering abortion or who've had abortions and show them the mercy of Christ. Um, this help. Get involved personally. Do something. Uh, we have the Walk for Life coming up on March 28th. And um, there's the March for Life on January 22nd in Atlanta. But the Walk for Life to support the Pregnancy Care Center in Jonesboro. Mark it on your calendar and, and be there. Be a part of it. And, and maybe that, the, the tour of the center, see what's going on. And maybe there's ways you can help that you don't even know about. Um, but ask, help. Second, adopt. Position your family so that you can move in and act when there's an opportunity to preserve life. Um, get your finances in order. Get out of debt. Uh, talk about it with your spouse. Prepare. Consult an attorney. Read. Talk to an adoption agency that works with pregnancy care centers like the one in Jonesboro. And so, so that, that's one way. You're, there's, there's, so that there's always options, alternatives to these young ladies and, who are coming in um, seeking help. 
Third, vote. Vote. Vote for pro-life candidates. Maybe, maybe become a pro-life candidate. Let me just throw that out there. Uh, help in the campaigns of pro-life candidates and volunteer your time. Be a single-issue voter when it comes to this. Um, being pro-life does not make a person a good candidate. Let me just say that. It doesn't qualify a person to be a good, um, a good public servant, that, that issue alone. But being pro-abortion should disqualify a person from office and from, our, from receiving our vote. Um, if a candidate said, I don't believe Asians should be allowed to hold office in this nation, we would say, what? You're not going to cast a vote for that candidate. That, that one issue disqualifies them. That's an awful thing. This is, this is, this is that. Why doesn't supporting the killing of unborn babies disqualify a candidate? Fourth, let's pray. I mean pray. This is not a political issue alone. This is a spiritual battle. The devil has always been working to kill babies. Uh, you see it in the slaughter of the innocents and after Jesus' birth and Herod. And, uh, that... But this is a spiritual battle, ultimately. Ephesians 6 talks about this. And so pray. Pray for pro-life judges to be nominated and confirmed. Pray for the horrors of abortion to become more obvious to our self-centered, self-infatuated culture. It's just a slave and a lover of all things convenient and easy. Pray for Christians to get involved and to, to wake up from their slumber on this issue. Just one final word. Again, if you've had an abortion, if you've counseled women to abort children, if you've participated in abortions as a doctor or as a nurse or in some capacity, maybe you did it out of ignorance, but now you realize it was sin. Um, the good news is that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. First Timothy 1.15 you know who wrote that? Apostle Paul wrote it to a young man named Timothy. But Paul was a man who persecuted the church. He was responsible for the killing of the deaths of many innocent people. He, he was known as a killer of Christians. He wrote that. And then the next thing he said was, he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul though, found God's grace and forgiveness at the cross. And you can too. No matter how great your guilt is, if you turn from your sin, if you trust in Jesus Christ, who alone bore your sin on the cross, God will pardon you of all your sin. He will credit the full righteousness of Jesus to your account. And, and you can say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you can, have, you can have the slate wiped clean. And you can experience freedom from the guilt and the shame and the, and the, uh, the, the sin that you've been involved in. Even as a believer, as a believer you've had an abortion. If you confess your sins... He is faithful and just to, for, to forgive us you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. First John one nine. You can be forgiven today. 
Let's pray. Father, I, I do pray for a, a greater awareness and alert for us as a congregation. Um, and, and God, I also pray for a greater atmosphere of grace in this church where, where women who have struggled with the thought or, or have had an abortion or, or maybe men who have, who have pushed their girlfriends to have an abortion. And there's guilt, there's regret. I pray that this would be a place where those things can be shared and helped and, and that the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ will be a, a wonderful salve to a troubled conscience and, and that you could, could do wonderful things in the lives of those that may be hurting here today. We pray for a turn in this, in this nation, uh, that there would be a, um, a, a greater uh, God awareness uh, of when it comes to this issue of life, that what you, what you say matters. I pray that it will matter more in our courts and among our politicians and the culture. Um, but God, even if the culture continues to spiral, I pray that you would help us to be faithful in, in a bright light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Um, so Lord God, help us not to, not to um, grow weary or to, um, to, to slacken off in this, but to persevere in this, in this endeavor to preserve, to protect the lives of the unborn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.